welcome to Write Medicine, a podcast that explores the minds, motivations and practices of people who create content that connects with and educates healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Alex Housen, a former nurse, a medical sociologist and an education writer and researcher in healthcare. Join me to learn from education professionals about resources and tools of the trade and listen to stories about what drives them in the medical education field. If your work involves planning, designing or delivering education to healthcare professionals, this podcast is for you. Today, my guest is Scott Cober, MBA, who knows a thing or two about a balance sheet and a lot about how to build a successful business. He's just launched his second company, Excalibur Medical Education, with Audrey Torno, who was a guest in episode one of Right Medicine. And he's a co-presenter with Derek Warnick of the wildly popular CME Palooza, which launched, it feels like a century ago now, but was actually just 2014. I've known Scott for almost a decade. He consistently delivers on impact, humor, and attention to detail. Today, he talks about content development strategies that support learning for healthcare professionals. So I'm here with Scott Kober, MBA, who is the president of Medcase Writer to talk about content development strategies that support learning for healthcare professionals. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Hi, Alex. Good to see you. So can we just start by talking a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you find your way into continuing medical education? Yeah, so, you know, I think everybody who kind of has fallen into CME sort of has their own pathway, their own journey. This was a first career for no one. Um, It certainly was not a first career for me. I was a journalism major in college and started my career as a sports writer for newspapers in what I like to say the the not Phoenix part of Arizona and the not Chicago part of Illinois. Had no interest in, in healthcare, science. Science was my worst subject in high school. But, um, you know, in about 2001, I kind of realized that my career had sort of stagnated. The, the jobs that I had been interviewing for in, you know, larger metropolitan areas had all been frozen and the industry was not doing well. And obviously, you know, everybody's following the newspaper and publication and, you know, industry for the last 20 years, it's still not doing well. So, so I got out and I came back to um, Philadelphia, which is where I uh, grew up and um, took initially a job with a healthcare publishing company, writing for one of their um, monthly magazines. Again, knowing nothing about healthcare, but I did know how to write. I knew how to research. I knew how to work on a deadline. So I just kind of, you know, dove in and, you know, anyone who's, you know, kind of transitioned in, you either know how to write or you know the science. There are not, there are not a lot of people who can do both right off the bat. So I knew how to write and I had to learn the science. And you really get thrown in the deep end very quickly and you have to figure out if you can kind of sink or swim. So, you know, I managed to kind of, you know, get my arms wrapped around the, the vernacular and, you know, how to do research for, for healthcare for a medical audience. So I worked for um, the publishing company, worked for that publication for about a year and a half before I transitioned over to kind of their startup medical education wing. 
And again, this this was back in in what I'm like a lot of people call the Wild West days of CME, where there certainly was not the separation between your pharma clients and your companies that were developing and, and accrediting continuing medical education. So um, a little bit different than we're used to now. But anyway, so I was there for about a year and a half and then kind of have meandered on in different roles and different companies before going out on my own about six years ago. So that is a very long-winded summary of sort of um, how I got to where I am now. And I think it touches on a lot of kind of interesting points. You know, you mentioned that, you know, where we are now, what are some of the changes that you've seen in CME since 2001? Particularly in terms of how we talk about the education part of CME and the whole kind of concept of adult learning. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I mean, I think one thing that certainly you continue to see more and more is, you know, our formats are changing. Our formats are getting a lot more complicated. They require um, a lot more planning, a lot more strategy up front. You know, whereas in, in the initial days of CME, we were doing a lot of, you know, print monographs. We were doing a lot of live meetings there, you know, back in 2001 was the, you know, still the early days of the internet. And so your online platforms either weren't there or they were very, very simple. And as things have gone on, um, you know, things have become a lot more complicated. There are kind of a lot more high-tech platforms out there that require those of us who develop content to think in a different way. It's not quite kind of, you know, you go from point A to B to C and you're done. Now you go from point A to D to B to F. True. And it kind of, it, it requires you to kind of think differently, but it also requires you to, to be creative, which is one of the things that I really like and, you know, always gets me excited when I'm, when I'm working with a you know, either a new platform or a platform that, that I enjoy working in. I was talking to another writer this week and, you know, we're working together on a new project and she's like, wow, I haven't, I've never seen this platform before. I can't remember the last time I had fun on an assignment. This is going to be a fun assignment. And, you know, I think that's one of the nice things about our industry, but certainly, you know, it makes things challenging for those people who, you know, are not able to sort of think outside the box and, and like doing the, you know, kind of ABC work of content development. So just kind of sticking with that idea of content development and education, when you think about adult learning and education, you know, what are some of the things that come to mind? Because when we talk about content development, you know, there's a part of that that sounds like, you know, you hear it a lot in the marketing world. You hear it a lot in, you know, journalism, particularly in the way that journalism has unfolded over the last, you know, decade. Or so when we're talking about content development in a learning context, what are we talking about? When you talk about, you know, adult learning, especially adult learning, you know, in healthcare, you know, there is a lot of content out there. There's a lot of education out there. There's a lot of content in everywhere that people can choose either to consume or not consume. But, you know, for adults, you, you get to make that decision. You get to decide um, what you want to interact with and what you don't. Whereas, you know, for, for children, you're in school, you know, you're told you must do assignment A, B, and C. We're going to be learning about this module this week. Well, that's not what happens in adult learning, obviously, where you kind of, you know, choose what you want. Like, you know, for example, I go to the, to the public library, you know, here a lot. Well, at least, you know, I used to until about a month and a half ago. And, you know, I go there with no set agenda and I kind of look around and I say, what do I, I want to read? What do I want to potentially learn about right now? This looks interesting. I'll grab it, bring it home, 50 pages in. I don't like it. I can put it aside. It's self-driven learning. And, and that's sort of what we're dealing with, certainly when we're developing content for adult education for healthcare workers. 
adults bring a lot of experience into their education. So when you're trying to figure out what you want to learn about, you're going to bring sort of, uh, you know, your own case studies, so to, so to speak, into the learning. And you're going to try to figure out, okay, how is what I'm reading about here applicable to my daily life? How is it applicable to this specific scenario that I went through, you know, a few days ago? And especially in healthcare, when, when you're dealing with patients, where you're dealing with making these decisions every day, um, that is going to be absolutely sort of at the forefront of what people are going to be interested in. And something that, you know, we certainly have to keep in mind when we're developing content. It's not just something, you know, here is reams and reams of data and statistics, but, you know, what does it all mean? And the what does it all mean part can be challenging for us because we're not healthcare professionals. We're not the ones seeing these patients. So lots of times we have to sort of kind of, you know, take our best guess and and kind of work with our faculty to kind of figure out, okay, what does this all mean? Yeah, no, I I love that. Focusing on the what is this all mean? You know, what are some of the best ways that you've seen in trying to kind of figure out or trying to communicate that sense of what this all means in a written project? I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, we're seeing lots of different platforms, we're seeing lots of different technologies, there's a lot more visualization, there's a lot more branched learning and simulation and these kinds of things. But there's still a lot of written content out there. What do you see as kind of best practices in terms of creating that written content in a way that really drives home what all of this means. Yeah, I mean, I think the number one thing is make it interesting. No one is going to want to sit through, you know, kind of the monotony of here's this study, here's this data. I mean, you've got to figure out a way to kind of translate the information in a way that's going to resonate with people. You know, I see a lot of times, you know, and this isn't just in a medical education, you know, people will write content and they'll want to focus so much on how smart they are and how many papers they found that they can reference and how many big words that they can use. And you get through it and you finish it and you're scratching your head and you're like, what did I just read? Like, what, what, what's the point of all this? So, so I think, you know, when we're developing content, and then, again, this goes for just about anything, you, know, you have to figure out a way to make it interesting and making it impactful. You know, one of the things that I was certainly able to bring over from my experience as a journalist is interviewing people, you know, just, just like you're doing here today. And you figure out how to ask the right questions and to get the right information that you need to develop interesting content. And again, it's it's not a skill that's kind of, that sort of comes naturally to people sometimes. I think that there are a lot of people who can be intimidated by, you know, interviewing, you know, Dr. So-and-so who is the world-renowned expert on disease XYZ. And you have to kind of get past that and realize, look, absolutely, you know, this is just another man or another woman. And I have a specific need of information I need to get from them. And, you know, and we'll work together to kind of figure out how to get that information. Yeah, no, I think I think that's absolutely the case. Although sometimes I think in order to ask those questions, and I've heard you interview people, and you're obviously a kind of master at that with uh, background journalism, but in order to ask those, what does it all mean? questions, you have to often have some sense of what clinical practice looks like. And as you said, a lot of people come into writing through a science background. So they have the lab experience, they have the bench experience, but not necessarily the clinical application. What can writers do and other people who are creating content, maybe on the visual side, to kind of sharpen that sense of what clinical practice looks like and how you have to think about what you're creating is going to have an impact on what people are actually doing. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, I remember, you know, when I first started out, I mean, I would, I would be scared to death that I was going to sound like an idiot and, you know, I would be asking questions that either made no sense or that, you know, they would just kind of like laugh at and, and this guy doesn't know what he's doing. So, you know, especially when you're first starting out is kind of learning to kind of ask broad open-ended questions and just letting someone talk. But, you know, as you kind of get a little more experienced and sort of have a better sense of the right questions to ask and how to do your research up front, certainly kind of preparing yourself is key. I don't go into any conversation or interview with a faculty member without having sort of, you know, a semblance of a list of questions of these are the topics that I want to cover. These are the questions that I want to ask. But I, every now and then I'll still have the experience of, wow, that was really bad. Like, you know, I could tell that the questions I was asking weren't exactly the questions that I should have been. um, And I didn't get all the information that I needed. And that's going to happen from time to time. Oh, sure. But certainly you hope that it happens less and less over the years. So one of the things that you do once you've done all these interviews, you use that to create cases. Can you talk us through why the case study approach is so effective and what you do to create those cases? Sure. Well, I mean, this this sort of goes back to your adult learning theory, where people are, are going to look to apply the education that they take in into real-world scenarios, and in our case, real-world clinical scenarios. So through the case study, you're able to present patients who, you know, a learner might say, oh, this patient sounds very similar to uh, Mrs. Johnson, who I saw yesterday. You know, let's see how they would have approached the care of this patient through this case. But when you're developing a case study, there's, there's certainly a few things to keep in mind. First of all, the details matter. And, you know, it's sometimes kind of getting down to those details that, again, not necessarily an easy thing, but those can be important. And getting those details right. I remember, I know this, this kind of goes back a dozen years. There was a case that I had um, worked on. You know, we put it out and we had the patient on, I don't remember what it was a dose of a common drug. And we had this patient on. 500 milligrams instead of 50 milligrams. Well, we got one or two comments back and the activity launched that way. We got one or two comments back saying, you know, as soon as I saw that you had the dosage of this drug off, I knew that you guys didn't know what you're doing and I stopped looking through this educational activity. So the details matter. And then also it's kind of creating that engaging story. You know, the way I kind of said earlier, you know, kind of write at a language in which people are going to be able to understand. Don't try to prove how smart you are. Um, but make an interesting story, figure out a way to present an interesting case. You know, as there are more case studies available online, you know, certainly if I'm developing cases in an area that I haven't done a lot of work in the past, I'll look at a lot of other case studies that have been published and are out there just to see what are they writing about? What are the issues that they're tackling? And a lot of times I'll start my cases from there and just sort of adapting some of the things that have already been done and then putting kind of a unique spin on it. Yeah, it's almost like doing your kind of market research to find out, you know, what's already out there and then make sure that you're you're hitting all the right points, but in a different and fresh and unique way. I mean, I have to say that you've come back to this a couple of times, you know, writing things in a way that is kind of engaging and interesting rather than the, the laundry list of, you know, scientific data. But one of the things I struggle with is having a sense of style, you know, how much style can you have? as a writer, when you are writing material that is supposed to support learning. What's your view on that? 
Yeah, I probably go overboard from time to time. So there is a balance there. But at the same time, I probably, you know, kind of give people a little more leeway than most. You know, what is the educational message you're trying to get across? And are you getting your message across effectively? It's not a one size fits all, certainly. I work with a lot of, especially nurses and nurse practitioners who, who kind of write individual essays. And I say to them, look, before you start writing, just figure out what the message is you're trying to get across with this piece. And we'll work together on figuring out how to sort of get that message across. Some of them are really good writers. Some of them can be really entertaining. And what I tell them is that if you can be entertaining and still get your message across, that's going to be the perfect way to do it. It doesn't come natural to a lot of people. And some of them just kind of stick to the drive, the tried and true, you know, ABC formula. Certainly when I'm trying to develop content, I'm mindful of not sort of overwhelming anyone with, you know, a lot of data and a lot of meaningless information. But just because of the nature of our field, that could certainly be a challenge because, you know, a lot of it, it's, you're expected to kind of be up to date on what's going on in the field, what new studies have been published, what have we found. And sometimes the clinical applicability of that data is unclear, especially to us, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it can be a challenging balance. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. I guess to kind of wrap up and bring us back to a couple of points that you made at the beginning of our conversation which you know have to do with the way that things are changing and all the different platforms and technologies that are available. How, if you're kind of gazing into your crystal ball, how important do you think written content is going to be in the next you know, five years? I don't think it's going to change. I mean, I think education is always going to center on the content itself. It doesn't matter what sort of bells and whistles you put around it. The core of any adult education is going to be around the content that they're expected to engage with and to take in. So regardless of what the platforms look like, um, there is always going to be a role for people like you and I figuring out the best way to develop the right content that maximizes the clinical utility of whatever platform you're using. I hear you know, from a lot of people, they said, oh, I've never worked with this platform before. What advice do you have? Or you know, how do I figure this out? And a lot of times you kind of have to just kind of go through examples, go through samples. Lots of companies have templates now for you to work with. But, you know, for people who develop content, you're going to have to learn how to interact with these platforms to figure out the best way to deliver and design your content. But our jobs aren't going away anytime soon. The demand for people who are good at developing content, especially, again, developing content for healthcare professionals, isn't going to change. It's just some of the skills that you're going to need to do it and do it well are going to be perhaps a little bit different than they were and and maybe are today. I have to say that's a relief to hear. You know, we're talking just after CME Palooza spring or spring CME Palooza. How much are people talking about content development in the CME Palooza? Yeah, not a lot. And, um, you know, it's it's something that I always struggle with because I'm one of the co-producers of of the event. And so, you know, a lot of times I'm one of the people who are, you know, one of the two people who is going to be deciding, you know, what's on the agenda for the year. And content development sort of often does get a short shrift as something that, you know, oh, this isn't hard to do, or for whatever reason, it's just not something talked about a lot. And we have had sessions from time to time focused on best practices for developing content in CME. And we do have a case-based session pretty much every year where where people will walk through challenging cases that they've had. But 
As far as, you know, sessions that are devoted specifically to, you know, how to develop content for healthcare education, it doesn't come up often in our sessions and it doesn't come up often in a lot of industry sessions. And I've never been quite able to figure out why. Maybe you have some thoughts on that, but it's something that should be talked about more and for some reason isn't. Yeah, I know it's interesting. It is a kind of hidden labor, which is part of the rationale for having these kind of conversations to find out more about what that hidden labor looks like, who's doing it, and how can we do it better. Scott, thanks so much for sharing your time and your expertise with us this afternoon. Great. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Scott reinforced how important it is to design education in ways that allow adults to bring their own experience into the learning space and that provide a roadmap to application. In a world of increasing visualization and gamification and branched learning, development of written content in healthcare needs to build in choices for learners, show what scientific data means for clinical practice, and create a narrative structure that resonates with learners and makes clear the key takeaways. Case studies provide a particularly effective format that can hit all of these points. I hope you found our conversation helpful and that there's something in there that you can use in your own work. And before I sign out, I'd love it if you could subscribe to Write Medicine on Apple, Spotify, Google, and other platforms. And if this podcast resonates with you, perhaps even write a review. And I'd love it if you sign up for my newsletter. It's bi-weekly and I share insights and resources to support the design, delivery, and evaluation of continuing education in the health professions. Until the next time, I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Right Medicine.